It's kind of a strange thing to sit here and talk about life. Because almost anything we can say, the very attempt to speak about life is to um, somehow make it kind of clumsy or cheapened. The very nature of trying to describe life is is flawed from the beginning. Life defies description. Life is fundamentally wide open and free. And any attempt to understand life is doomed to failure. Really. Whatever we can understand and articulate about life, the articulation of it is bound to be reductive, simplistic, uh, limited. So here goes nothing. <laughs> we spoke a couple of nights ago about these, these, this progression of uh, the three primary ways consciousness gets stuck in a limited sense of the world and what's happening. The three primary ways of clinging. So we spoke yesterday about what I want, the force of wanting, what the Buddha calls clinging to sensual desire. And then today I'd like to look a little bit at what I think the Buddha calls clinging to views and opinions. And as a way to explore this territory, we might go from the impersonal to the interpersonal to the personal. Views about life itself, true to views about others, and then views about oneself. What I think about Life, what I think about the way things are, what I think about you, whoever the you is, and what I think about me. In the same way that we spoke yesterday about the the kind of worldly view of wanting, the the worldly approach to wanting, of trying to fulfill one's desires, and then what I was calling the pseudo-spiritual view, that one shouldn't have any desires. One sees exactly the same movement with thoughts. The more the worldly, what we might call worldly, the, what the Buddha called the way the uh, untrained mind works, is we tend to believe all our views. We tend to believe everything we think. And because we think it, we think it's true. So some we, well, some we reject, Some we accept, and then we end up with views about life, views about others, views about ourselves. And we tend to look at those views in a largely unexamined way, as if if they're true. What I think about such and such. I think it's like such and such. As if that carries any kind of real authority. And then, the swing back the other way, to what I've been calling the pseudo-spiritual view, is some sense that, Oh, one shouldn't have any views. We see that in meditation sometimes. I shouldn't have any thoughts. 
We hear that there's some, we recognize that there's some problem with thought having all the authority. And then we swing to another extreme of trying to get rid of all thought. As if that might be some kind of fantastic state to be in. Hello, you know. You know, you can get a lobotomy if you want to get rid of all thought, right? So the middle way, like we explored with wanting, the middle way around thoughts, views, opinions, is to investigate them. It's hard to have a true sense, a direct meeting, a real intimacy with life, if that's being filtered through a lot of largely unexamined views about the way things are. So, what are our views about the way things are, about the way life is, about the way people are, about the way I am? And we have to, it's tricky, right? It's tricky to speak about our views because we look at the world through them. We've grown up, we've spent some decades, some of us more decades than others, right? cultivating views about things. So when you just hear the world, what, do you, what does that bring up, the world? I mean, it's interesting, when I think of the world... I think of, here it is, here's the world. You know, that's, probably many of us think of that as the world. That image, it's gone. (laughs) That image is so, uh, it's so much a part of our consciousness, right? If I think of planet Earth or I think of the world, that view comes to mind. But for most of us, our parents' generation had just didn't have that image. That image, when did they go to space first time? 1961, right? Before 1961, or whenever it was, that image didn't exist. So whatever anybody's sense of the world was, the view of the world, and we're only going back 50 or 60 years, right? Imagine if you go back... 100, 200, 5,000 years? What did, that, what did that mean, the world? I don't know, but it meant something very, very different. It didn't include that sense of the world. This blue-green ball spinning in space. Couldn't mean that. That view hadn't, hadn't come into being. And so we know, you know, there's a time when people's view of the world was that it was flat, for example. So we take for granted our sense, whatever our sense of things in general are, and in this case our view of the world, we take it as if we know. We know, I know what the world's like. It's like that. Right? Like that image of the planet. Basically, we, we grow up in a view of the world, in a world view. Okay. And we can look, probably for the first time, really, 
that's part of our kind of postmodern era is that really for the first time we can actually look at all at different historical moments and at all different cultures and we can see different mythologies so the various religions that you know until very very recently those religions would have grown up largely in isolation from each other so there wasn't such thing as comparative mythologies and the nature of mythology is when we're inside it we don't think it's mythology we think it's true so whatever that mythology is that says that the world is resting on the back of a giant turtle, right? those people for whom that's grown up, as that, they don't say, well, this is my mythology. No, they say, this is what the world's like. It's on the back of a turtle. Most of us have grown up with some kind of religiously influenced mythology. right? And for probably the vast majority of us, that's been a Judeo-Christian, what's called a Judeo-Christian mythology. The world was created in seven days, etc., etc., etc. And we, probably most of us, you know, there's an extraordinary amount of people in the modern Western world who do align themselves with that. The vast, the vast majority of North America, like. I don't know what the, I can't remember what the percentages are, but it's like the majority take that uh, biblical sense of creation as literally true. Most of us probably have feel, uh, feel like we've rejected that mythology, that creation mythology, right? That sense of that that's how the world was done by basically a guy with a long white beard smiting things from the heavens or whatever happens and uh, f- what was it first day day and night and then second day something else trees maybe and um, by the weekend he got around to human beings and that was more than enough etc so we we're kind of in a in a strange place where we actually have access to two mythology two quite different mythologies at once our, the Judeo-Christian heritage mythology of how we think about the world, which is probably more influential in our psyche than we realize, even if we feel like we've rejected it. And the Western scientific material mythology, which because it's our most current mythology, we tend to not think of as a mythology. Right? That's the best way to get the sense of how we tend to think of a particular mythology as true. So the narrative we might have is, oh, well, we are culturally we used to have this religious mythology, but then we got over that, and now we see how the universe is, because science is explaining it. And there's a big bang, and then uh, a lot of expansion, and then something, 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 and here we are. That's just a mythology. No truer or less true than any other mythology. For, for someone it's turtles. For someone it's God's creation. And for someone else it's a Big Bang. Competing mythologies. Life is too free, too vast too mysterious to be defined by a mythology. 
So we like to think, and it's the human arrogance generally, in any culture, we tend to think of our mythology. We don't think of it even as mythology. We think of it as true. As true. But even with the postmodern advantage of comparative mythologies, seeing that all these people seem to, can produce different mythologies and be equally convinced they're true, we still manage the human arrogance of thinking that our one, called science, well, the others are all mythologies, right? We even talk about They talk about them. Creation mythologies. But science, da-da-da, Science is a mythology. It's also interesting that in in our uh, in these kind of because we have access to two mythologies, you know, our scientific mythology has given us um, has sort of replaced for most of us probably has replaced religious mythology as a sense for a sense of the origin of things like, that explains the way the universe is in some way. You have to see for yourself. You may feel more aligned with one or other. I don't know all of your backgrounds, right? Maybe you have, some of you have had some kind of Eastern, um, Asian, Buddhist or Hindu cosmologically mythological influence. Growing up, uh, Muslim mythology, which is pretty much aligned, at least in terms of creation, with uh, Judeo-Christian mythology. But though we've we've uh, at least culturally, largely, even though our religious institutions limp on, even though we've largely replaced that with a scientific mythology for our understanding of how the universe is, science. Ha- the scientific mythology hasn't addressed our moral mythologies. So there's a kind of grey area in our views about life, in our inherited sense of the way life is and the way we get meaning, the way we kind of establish or intuit our own place in the universe from these mythologies. There's this gap. So we've got the sense of how a, a, a physical mythology from science, but not a moral one. So ideas of good and evil, which are you know, intrinsic, it seems, to human psyche. And the sense of what happens to us after we die, which also has been of profound interest to all human beings. Every history, everywhere in history, every culture has come up with some kind of mythology, and of course it's just that, it's a mythology, to explain the process of life and death. But science hasn't gone there because it likes to do what it calls proving things. And it's kind of hard to prove anything about what happens after death. You have to ask a dead person, and they're not talking, right? So, all this emphasis on mythology, here we are meditating, to start to have a sense of the way in which our sen- the way we make sense of our life in the bigger picture, our place in the universe, of what the universe is, of what the world is, that's a conditioned sense. It's the fruits of the education we've received in our own particular 
mythology. And if we'd grown up in a different time in history, or if we'd grown up in a different culture, a very different culture, I don't mean French or something, you know, another European culture will will have largely grown up with the same mythology, but a very different culture, we might have a very, very different sense of our place in life, a very different sense of the meaning of life, a very different sense of the origin of life. So basically, we can't rely on our views about the way life is. We can't rely on them. They're just, they're just, they're just our own conditioned mythology. We have to look beyond views. That's the link, right, of all this stuff around mythology to meditation. Meditation, in a way, is the art of listening to life directly. What we were calling finding out moment by moment. Any view that we can come up with is just going to be a view, just a mythology. So how can we contact our sense of our place in life, the meaning of life, the nature of the universe? We can listen very closely to it. The nature of the universe reveals itself in every sound, in every sight, in every movement. It's changing nature. It's dynamic nature. It's mysterious nature. So when the Buddha, for example, was asked about the origin of the universe or the, or the nature of life after death or all of that stuff, he just stayed quiet. He just wouldn't get into it. He just refused to go there. Very interesting. The Buddha didn't give any cosmological teachings at all. Which, of course, makes people uncomfortable because we don't, we don't know how to rely on no mythology. So we seek to fill in the gaps. And so the mythology that goes with Buddhism is just the mythology of ancient India. The mythology of the, the life cycle of universes and kalpas. The mythology of uh, re- rebirth or reincarnation. So just to invoke that possibility of listening to life beyond our mythology, of looking up at the sky without our mythology of what that is, of having a sense of sun and trees and uh, the life all around us and within us, without relying on our mythology. Some ancient cultures would look at the would look at the nature around us and see tree spirits in the trees and sun spirit in the sun and earth spirit in the earth and etc etc. We see our own mythology reflected back at us. We might go and we might look at the plants. We might see photosynthesis. 
Oh, yes, well, of course, sunlight, oxygen, carbon dioxide, something. Is that what's happening? I mean, that's a description of it. But more important than whether that's true or not, or whether it's measurable in terms of oxygen and and stuff and stuff, the fact that that gives us a view that just lines up with our already existent mythology, it doesn't show us directly anything about life fundamentally. But life fundamentally is available to us in the tree, in the air, in the sounds. So we have to feel deeper than our views about life. To discover life itself. And the more deeply we discover life itself, the less we might actually be able to say about it. Life too vast and free for our definitions. But the more contact there is, the more uh, intimacy there is, the more understanding kind of ripens in our soul, we might say. The more we know our place in life, even if we can't really articulate it very well. Um, one of the other mythologies about life, one of the things that seems to happen pretty much universally, and this doesn't even seem culturally determined, it's just a mythology as we get, seems to get more severe as we get older. It's the mythology that things are getting worse. It's hard to explain, but it seems like everyone everywhere, always. Maybe that's a little over the top. Most people, most places usually (laughs) have some sense that things are getting worse. You know that way that the older people uh, complain about children being, uh, children are so disrespectful compared to how they used to be. The way that we look at children in our generation, for example, and... uh, depends which generation, you know, how old you are. But the tendency now to look at children using Facebook, for example, and say, oh, what a terrible thing, Facebook, and uh, what's happened to real conversation, etc., etc. As if Facebook is the, is the evil that's, that's somehow corrupting children in a way that they've never been corrupted before. But when we were young, then maybe our parents used to say that about TV. Oh, what's the matter with you watching TV? You'll get square eyes. Why don't you go outside? And for them before that, it it was something else. That's the view, what I'm calling the mythology, the view that there's something now that's terrible that didn't used to be the case. So here's my killer quote for the day. This is from an Assyrian tablet. Where was Assyria? I don't know. Assyria, not Syria. Somewhere in Upper Egypt, I think. 2800 BC. 
This is the translation from a stone tablet. I was so shocked when I read this. I cross-referenced it and really tried to establish if it's really true. Apparently, it is. Okay, ready? This is 4,800 years ago. The earth is degenerating today. Bribery and corruption abound. Children no longer obey their parents. Every man wants to write a book. And it is evident that the end of the world is fast approaching. That's the mythology of decay. Even celebrity culture. Every man wants to write a book. You know? We thought that Warholian 15 minutes of fame thing had been brought about by, uh, what's it called, Pop Idol, X Factor, something. No, it was alive and well in Assyria 5,000 years ago. Same basic movements of human mind. So what's that say about, to us about our sense of the way life is? We have, and of course, there are elements that really need attention, right? There's elements of truth about our, envir- our environmental crisis, about the way we're consuming resources, about the way climate is changing. But it would be very, very hard for us to engage truly and effectively with those real issues of our time if we don't understand that we're looking at them through a mythology of decay, through the idea that things are getting worse. So we can, again, we believe our mythology, we can point to the facts that seem to threaten our very existence on earth. But important to remember that a generation ago, we, had, we just had a different set of facts we could point to, which was then the Cold War, right, nuclear power. And those of you who remember the 80s well, it was a very real sense that any minute, that mad Reagan, the mad, we thought we had the maddest American president then. That's another mythology, right? <laughs> God, what a mad American president. Then, God, last time we got another, another mad one. The sense that any moment someone might press the button and that this is real, real in the 80s, some of you remember, that at any moment we might hear the sirens and there would be four minutes before nuclear obliteration. The sense of being on the precipice of the end. Right? The sense that there's something that threatens life. It's evident, 8,000 years ago, it's evident that the end of the world is fast approaching. And so a lot of the mythology around uh, the state of the world, our sense of the state of the world, regardless of what the facts that seem to be available, regardless of what we hang it on, it easily seems evident to us. It's rather ironic, the word evident, but there we go. Evident that the end of the world is fast approaching. So before that, the nuclear threat. What, what else was the Acid rain. Do you remember acid rain? What happened to acid rain? <laughs> that was going to wipe out everything at one point, I remember. Oh. The, the threat of communism. What happened to the threat of communism? 
before that was the Second World War. Well, it seemed a world, the world war. Before that was the First World War. Each time that sense of a, a, a great looming threat that is going to wipe out life as we know it. Well, life itself is unwipeoutable. But life as we know it, and this is life as I know it, this thinking, feeling, perceiving, this is under threat. This is going to be wiped out at any moment, or at least any decade. Right? A few decades from now, life will be... What the, it's true. The end of the world is fast approaching. Right? The end of this world, of this life, is fast approaching. And that, the, the, that unconscious recognition gets projected as a mythology. The mythology of decay, the mythology of ending, the mythology of threat. So again, our sense of what life's like. You know, you see how these views are so embedded in us. We don't think of them as views. We think of them as truth. And that's the nature of views, regardless of whether they're about these large themes that we're talking about now, or as we'll get to, the more uh, the closer themes of the ways we think about others or of ourselves. It's hard to see under our views because we're so... Uh, What's the word? So we're so used to them. They they don't appear as views. They appear as the way things are. So, what about you? What do I think about you? Whoever the I is, and whoever the you is. All the views we get into about, I mean, about all kinds of things, about everything, in fact. But particularly if we just take the example of people, because there's a way we, we interact with people that's, that's more intense than the way we interact with objects, or many of the other things we have views about, ideas about. Now, we spoke yesterday about the, this idea of vipassana romance or the vipassana vendetta. The way we can build up a whole bunch of views about somebody, likable or dislikable, based on nothing, based on the flimsiest of uh, impressions. That's the, the production of views when we think we know what you're like. And you know, the various trouble we get into with each other because we think we know what you're like. Oh, what's that phrase? Familiarity breeds contempt. The way we amass our views and amass our views and, uh, until we've got some fixed sense of the other. The way we get into conflict with each other. It's very interesting, the conflict in, in terms of the views of the way we both think we're right. right. I hold one view, you hold another view, and we both, they're opposite views, and we both think we're right. And what does that tell us? I mean, obviously, it's me that's right. right? 
and the other's wrong, but they, they're deluded. They can't see that they're wrong. And yet from the other side, it appears in exactly the same way. It doesn't tell us, often it doesn't tell us much about the right view or the wrong view. It tells us about the nature of views. The nature of views is that they're hard to see past or see round or see through when we're clinging to them. The clinging to views is a way consciousness gets stuck. Stuck in a belief about the world. Stuck in a belief about the way things are. Stuck in a belief about who you are or what you're like or what you do or what you should do. What I wish you'd stop doing, etc. And where there's clinging, there's suffering. Where there's clinging, there's limitation. Right? Consciousness gets stuck in that limited sense. So the encouragement is to investigate our views. Can we you know, meet life, like we were saying just now, by listening closely enough to it that we're listening to it directly, feeling it directly, sensing into it directly? rather than just relying on our stale, partial view. Can we meet each other as a practice? The practice of meeting each other afresh, of seeing the living, changing humanity that we're meeting, rather than seeing the one we think we know. Who's like this? Who's like that? Etc. Can we maintain that perspective of awareness when we've got contrary views to somebody else? Without clinging to the idea that I'm right. We suffer so much by being right. It's better to be free than to be right. And then views about ourselves. Where to begin? As if we haven't got enough trouble with these other views. Most trouble is in the views about ourselves. I teach a whole week-long retreat every summer at the Moulin, at the centre where I live in France, about self-views. So I'm wondering, in the ten minutes that I'm going to speak for, (laughs) self-views often, you know, they're kind of, they're more, we invest even more strongly in views about ourselves, because we, we, we matter so much to ourselves. Okay, I think this about life, I think this about you, but about me? Oh. So they're more, they're more strongly charged. Of course, the, those we care about, those we're close to, our views about them can get very charged too. 
but closest of all to this one. So just to consider what, how do you think about yourself? So many of the ways we think about ourselves begins with some kind of like, oh, I'm so... Mm-mm-mm-mm. How do you think about yourself you know, since you've been here? How do you measure or evaluate yourself in terms of meditation practice? You know, it's, it's kind of tragic the way we give ourselves such a hard time with all the ways, you know, most of our views about ourselves, or many of them, are concerned with how I should be. I should be more, or I shouldn't be so, or oh, I should have been, etc., etc. All that shoulding. Like my friend says, don't should on yourself so much. (laughs) Busy shoulding on ourselves. And we and the the way we view ourselves tends to set ourselves apart. I mean, you know, it's very it's like in the group meetings this morning. One of the things that's so helpful about meeting in a group is that one gets to really feel the sense of solidarity with others. Oh, that there's people that there's these broad similar themes that people are struggling with similar things. People are are uh, exploring similar patterns in many ways. So those patterns have their own decoration, the decoration of our particular history and family circumstance, and etc. 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 But the the difference of the decoration is quite insignificant compared to the broad strokes of similarity. And it's often very reassuring. Oh, to hear, oh, others are, I'm not the craziest one here. (laughs) Because our views about ourselves, by their nature, because they're so self-referencing, oh, it's all about me, 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 I'm so this, and I ought to be this, and I want this, and I'm going to try and do this, and I've got, It's, it's very isolating. Everyone else just exists as a sea of other and then me, me, me sort of stands out so brightly, so tightly from that. We make ourselves so special in different ways. Either especially bad or wrong, or especially good or great. It's more culturally, in our culture at least, it's more culturally acceptable to be especially bad or wrong. Right? That's a kind of British thing particularly. We like to, we, there's that sort of self-deprecating humour. But it's also, it's much more socially acceptable for us to say, oh, well, I'm... We kind of, and then everyone validates us for that. Oh, you know, we get uh, some kind of reassurance, etc. It's not so culturally okay... With, uh, for us to kind of be big and bright and uh, wonderful. Some of us feel okay with doing that, but there's, it's a bit culturally frowned on. In other cultures, like I was, just, I was just in the States recently, and it's the other opposite there. 
there it's kind of the culturally approved of to be kind of like, ta-da, here I am, <laughs> you know. So our self-views might be more inflationary or deflationary, like that. Our self-views around meditation practice, of course, they can oscillate as well. One minute, oh, and our mind is going here and there, legs are aching, and the view, it's just a view. Oh, I'm such a hopeless meditator. Oh, I'll never get the hang of this. Oh, why did I bother coming here? Oh, something. And then there's some, some moment of peace. We say, no, wow, now I really start projecting forward. Next week it's going to be me sitting up the front there. And uh, <laughs> I think everyone could do with uh, hearing my insights, actually, uh, etc. Do either of those positions, deflationary view, oh, I'm so, or the inflationary view, oh, I'm so, do they mean anything about us? Do they say anything about what this is, this experience of being here, this living, breathing, sensate uh, brilliance, this capacity to feel and respond, this extraordinary meeting with life that's going on right now? How reductive, how nuts. To take all of this and make it into an, oh, I'm so something. Self-view in terms of inflation or deflation. Self-view in terms of gender or capacity or attractiveness or size or shape or age or skills or job or whatever it is that we identify with. That we make up the mythology of me. And in just the same way that uh, mythologies help us to speak about our sense of the way life is. In the same way, the stuff, it's not that we shouldn't be, uh, have any of that, right? We need to talk about, uh, we need to kind of recognize which gender we are. It's helpful, right? even if it's to use the right bathroom. We, we, we have a sense of ourselves in terms of our skills or capacity and age and work we do, etc. But if we're relying on our views, if our views have all the authority, if our views are unexamined, we end up believing that that's the truth about us. And then we end up living in that reduction, in that limitation. We end up living with consciousness Vast, free, inexplicable, stuck, stuck on me, stuck around you, stuck in the world. So listen to the way life is. Listen more closely than anything your your ideas can tell you. Listen to what's happening when you meet another, when you interact with another, when you're faced with life here, out here. And most of all, 
because these are the views we hold on to so preciously. Listen to your own experience. Not the view about it. The ungraspable, living vibrancy of being here, right now. This that we are, that we can't explain, that we can't define, the definition would just be a view, a reduction. This that we are, this expression of life waking up to itself, exploring itself, expanding more and more fully into itself. Can't be explained. Can't be defined. Can't be known by the world of thought, view. But, it, but this living truth is inviting us in all the time. Each sound, each sight, each movement is that invitation. Free life is the party to which we're invited. And we're asked to leave our views at the door. So stay tuned to life, friends. Let's see what we can find out together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.